Hey everybody, welcome back to the Nothing Over Podcast. Uh, before we start the show, I wanted to uh, take the time to remind everybody that we have some awesome show sponsors. Uh, as always, ModusNation.com. They have uh, awesome clothing. If you haven't checked them out, awesome sweatshirts. Uh, you know, just a reminder, you know, the, the uh, Ben and Lindsay behind Modus Nation, they are doing some great things. They're great people. Uh, they give a lot back to the community. Uh, they give a lot back to various charities, uh, veteran, veteran charities, um, you know, all different things. So even in the short time that they've been around, um, they've already taken the time to, to give back and they continue to do that. So please uh, support them. They definitely deserve it. Uh, buy some gifts, uh, do some Christmas shopping early. It'll be here before you know it. Uh, but really check them out. They have some great designs. I really love their stuff. And obviously they're good people. They support the show. Uh, plus they, they support the community. So ModusNation.com. Be sure to check them out. And as always, they have a promo code uh, for 15% off, and that is nothing owed, all caps, on their website. Uh, so nothing owed will give you 15% off at the Modus Nation store. Um, and our other sponsor for the probably remainder of this season is going to be uh, Winfield Watch. Uh, so WinfieldWatch.com, uh, run, uh, run by another great guy, Mark Miller. He's a veteran also. Um, really guys, if you're in the mood, if you're in the market for a watch, uh, the Winfield watches are awesome. Uh, they're kind of a military field watch style, but, uh, they wear really nice. They're made very well. Um, you know, if you know anything about watches, you know that a lot goes into producing a, a quality watch and uh, Winfield is definitely doing it. Uh, so please, uh, take the time, uh, support them. I know he's running some different promotions from time to time. Um, so please check him out. A lot of times they're offering, um, you know, free straps, but I know right now they're offering a 20% off discount on all their watches, um, kind of for the, uh, the spring time frame. So again, uh, winfieldwatch.com, please check them out. Um, like I said, I, I said before, I was a customer of theirs long before they were on the show. Um, and as I learned more about the company and as I learned more about Mark, um, I realized, you know, they're worth, they're worth supporting. Um, you know, he's been generous enough to support the show. So we want to uh, support him, uh, in return. So please, uh, Check them out also. And now that we have the uh, sponsorships out of the way, let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. You're here with uh, Brian, as always. Uh, ben couldn't make it today, which is unfortunate because we have an awesome guest. Um, our guest today is Deborah Driggs, um, who has done a lot in the short amount of time she's been on, the, on this earth. Um, she kind of started from humble beginnings, um, but has... I think accomplished several things in her life that most people would be proud of, even if they only accomplished a fraction of those things. Um, and reading through her bio, she was um, someone I really wanted to get on the, on the show um, just because she, I think she epitomizes what we talk about on the show that no matter where you come from or what adversity you have, I think there's always an opportunity to, to start over and to, um, to reinvent yourself. And as you'll hear from her, she's accomplished some, some great things. And a lot of you may have, may have seen her, um, she's been in the public eye for several years and, and done several different things. Um, but I want to, I want to let her talk about it and, uh, and we'll go from there. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to, uh, Ms. Driggs so she can introduce herself and we'll get started. So Ms. Driggs, how are you doing today? Thank you for coming on the Hi. show. Hi, everybody. Hi. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yes. This is Deborah Driggs and, uh, yeah, it's interesting to talk about being in the public eye you know, because I, I feel like I kind of grew up in that in that entertainment world, you know, and had a lot of 
lot of different um, things happened to me during that time that kind of have given me the tools of where I am now, but we'll, you know, we'll get back to that. But yeah, yeah, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the public eye, even, you know, for me, I call it my five minutes of fame, you know, being on the cover of Playboy and I did several commercials and I was a VJ for a while and (laughs) hosted a morning show. You know, I mean, I, I, people knew who I was and especially when I I did not just Playboy, but I was on the cover of other magazines as well. And muscle and fitness and and um trade magazines like beverly hills 213 and uh parenting magazines when i started having kids i mean it's like you're in that you're yeah so you're in that you know people are interested and they want to know like i remember as i was getting further away from playboy and my year which was 1990 People would say, well, what is she doing now? What is she doing now? And it was only like, I was only like three years, <laughs> you know, I was like 1993. I'm like, my God, yeah. you know, I felt old because they were like, well, what are you doing now? <laughs> Which is funny to me now being that it's 30 years later and here right. I am, you know, and I'm completely in a different place in life and, and you know, have a different path and career and And so it's really interesting, like, you know, all the different turns and reinventions that I did along the way. But yeah, so just, you know, from the beginning, I grew up, I was born and raised in Southern California. And, you know, my first addiction was attention. I wanted to be in front of people. And I was always the ham, the funny girl. I was running around in go-go boots, dancing. And I literally force people to sit on the couch so I would and put, I would put on shows and then I the worst part was I would try to sing and they were like okay that's where we have to draw the line you know you can dance but girl you cannot sing because I've always had this kind of raspy voice okay. and so is that maybe one thing that you you haven't done is, is sing because it seems like you've done everything else so is singing I, off the I, table for you I could just tell you this I have tried. I used to go to auditions in LA, like when I was really aspiring to get it break into the business and I had a dance background. And so I would, every dance audition, they dancers were lucky because you they always had open call auditions for dancers. So I went to all of those, but the problem was they'd hand me music to sing. And I'd be like, <laughs> oh my God, talk about fake it till you make it. I remember I'd be like, go into the chapel and where <laughs> and I'd be trying to act this out you you can't see me but I'd be trying to act this out like funny and they were just like oh my god like <laughs> if there was a hook you know they'd be like yeah. pull her off the set so, but that was how crazy that? I was like 19 20 years old when I was doing okay. this so I had okay. no fear I would walk into these rooms and there would be these phenomenal dancers this was their life and I just wanted to get discovered you know I just was one of those girls that was like but I can do this you know and they're like yeah no we're looking for serious people you know and so I had talent but not to do a Broadway show I didn't have the voice or the chops for a Broadway show but I would go out on all these auditions and 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 so, but what I learned from all of that was that it, the longer you stay in line and the longer you show up and you don't give up, something will eventually hit. 
believe it or not, right. you know, right. but the minute you go and do one thing and you're like, Oh, never mind, I can't do it. It's over. Right. But for me, it just was never over. I was like, well, that's okay. And I never looked at it as failure. I just was like, Oh, I went, you know, they weren't looking for me today. They'll be looking for me tomorrow. You know, like I just, my, my yeah. mindset was so off the charts. And so where do you, where do you think you picked that up? Cause a lot of people don't have that attitude. A lot of people, you know, like they've, a lot of people, plenty of people come to Hollywood to audition and they give up after a few months, you know, I'm just not cut out for it. How do you think you developed well, I think, that? I think I, I think I developed a really good, you know, even though I grew up really poor, I didn't know I was poor. There's a big difference. Right. You know, I grew up, we didn't have money, you know, I wasn't doing fancy things, but I didn't know there was any difference. I didn't know. I didn't feel poor. I didn't, I knew sometimes I would get hints of it when I would go to other friends' homes because I grew up in an apartment right. and they all lived in beautiful homes. And, and mm. so I, I kind of knew, but I didn't feel different then, if that makes sense. I just didn't feel different. I always felt sure. a part of, and I felt that I had a seat at the table, so to speak. And I think I had a lot of my, I think because my, everybody was always saying, oh, watch Debbie. Or, you know, I, like I said, I came out performing for everybody. And then my mom, the, I remember I came home, I think I was in first grade, right before first grade. And I came home and I, I, I was, I found, you know, like the light bulbs went off. I'm five years old and I'm like, I want to skate because I went to a birthday party where we all got to skate in Harbor City. Okay. And my mom was, didn't real, you know, she just thought, oh, okay, it's a phase, you know, because I'm five. Right. And I'm like, no, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be an ice skater. Like I just knew. And so she indulged me and put me in group lessons. But what she didn't realize is I was serious. Like I went through those group lessons. I think there were eight stages before they would then at the end of those eight group sessions once you could do front and backwards I think it was then you were able to maybe get a private coach and so I flew through those group lessons I was on a mission you know I just wanted to skate and so then I started skating with this really really awesome coach and Back then you had to do figures and, you know, this is 40 years ago, we had to do figure eights every day. Right. And that's where I got burned out because I just wanted to skate and do all the beautiful tricks and spins and jumps. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, if you really want to compete, you have to do figures. Cause in order to compete back then you had to complete figure tests. And then that was the level that you competed in. And in right. order to get to the Olympics, you had to, complete all eight figure tests. And so this was tedious, really. For me, at my age, it was like every morning at 4 a.m., I'm now doing figure eights for hours, and I'm just bored out of my mind, but right. I wanted it so bad that I did it. And then after school, I would do all my free skating, and then I skated on the weekends, and then I started ballet. And at the age of 14, my parents decided to get a divorce and people are going, well, how did you afford to ice skate if you were so poor? Well, how we, how my mom did it, she was so, she worked so hard. She worked two jobs and, and all of her money literally paid for my ice skating. 
Um, and she would pick me, she would take her lunch break. They, so it would coincide with picking me up after school. And, and at this point now, I just remember I, I left Harbor City and now I'm skating in Paramount. And, you know, from where we lived in Torrance, that was a big drive every day. You know, it was an hour, right. oh, close to 45 minutes each way, hour each way, right. depending on traffic. So now I'm commuting to go to skate at 4 a.m. before school and after school. And she would pick me up after school, take me back to the rink and then go wow. back to work and then come back after work and wait until I was done. And I think we finished. I finished, I think, every night around 7.30, o'clock. Can you imagine? I'm doing my homework on the way home. I'm exhausted. I got to get back up at 4 a.m. the next day. You know, it just became my life. Right. And I'd be, fall, you know, I'd fall asleep at school. I would just be exhausted. And all I'd have going on in my head was ice skating and stuff. Right. You know, all I would do would be visualizing ice skating. And I'd be falling asleep in school. And it wasn't a big, uh, not a lot of kids were homeschooled. It was kind right. of unusual to do that. But we were actually talking about that at one point, that it would be easier for me to be homeschooled. And then I thought, that could be awkward because I'd be home alone because both right. my parents worked. And, and so there were all these different things going on. But at 14, my parents decided to split, which was a long time coming, was no surprise. But as kids, I have a sister and she's seven years younger. And as kids, we didn't know what was going on. And right. we came home and he was gone. And now, what it, now what's my mom going to do? No money. Two kids, yeah, that's, skating, yeah, that's skating just kind of fizzled out. And so I lost right. two things. I lost my parents' marriage, and then I lost my skating. And it was too much. At the age of 14, that was too much. Right. And um, I didn't have anybody to, to really bounce anything off of. Everybody in my life, nobody had any type of tools or experiences or positive affirmations there was nothing except right. stiff upper lip get over it move on you know and so I carried all of this horrible anger frustration and pain I just carried it with me everywhere because I didn't know I know where to release it really and I remember, you know, my, my mother and, my, and her mother are British, and it's part of their culture back then anyway it was, that yeah. everything was stiff. You did not show emotion. It was very stiff upper lip. And I remember yeah. them saying that to me. If I said I missed my father, if I said anything, they'd be like, why do you miss him? He was horrible. And, oh, that would just be like another wow. crush, you yeah. know? And so... But nobody knew, you know, back then, nobody knew really the impact that all of these negative experience would have on all of us, not just me, but on all of us. Right. It, you know, when bad things happen, it's like energy. It doesn't just happen to one person. It's like it, it affects everybody. Right. It affects right. everybody in the family. It affects friends. It affects outside family it, it just it's amazing how it just spreads it's almost like a germ and it just spreads 
And so I'm really careful of that now because I feel like now in my life today, you know, I'm really careful about the type of energy I want in my world and the type of energy that I am putting out into the world. It's I'm really careful because of what I went through at that age. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I had to learn the hard way. I became very street smart, you know, because I. I went to a private Catholic school. I was, I grew up in the ice skating rink and, and the ice skating really saved my life because my coaches and the people at the rink were my mentors. I didn't know that at the time, but they were, they were the people that were, they were the people that were rooting for me. And they were the people that wanted me to do well and cared you know, if I didn't show up to skate, everybody was worried. Where were you? You know, and right. so I felt like that was my family. So losing that, losing the, the 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 parents and all of that, it was like two deaths, really, at once. It was like the yeah, death of my yeah. parents' marriage and the death of my ice skating. And so I go from being in this structured environment and kind of a little socially awkward at this point, because that's all I did, to going right. into a public high school in a not so good area (laughs) okay and having no parent supervision and I just it just I just became this street smart edgy kind of like okay I got this you know no one's gonna tell me you know I just became rebellious so rebellious it was so obvious you know it was like do you mind do you think I'm just curious I always ask do you think that that was more of you trying to fit in at the time or do you think it was more of you just rebelling as maybe like you were upset at your, your past and kind of, you were maybe upset at your, your mom and dad, maybe what do you, do you think you ever thought about that? Uh, yeah, I think it was both. I think it's, it's a good question because I think it was both and I didn't know how to fit in really yet. I wasn't socially <laughs> prepared for high school at all. I was super immature as far as, not as far as like I was really independent and smart and mature that way, but for high school, I was not ready for this public high school. These kids had grown up together. They had already right. started partying. They had already had social experiences that I hadn't had. Right. And so they were already like, I felt really out of place my first year in high school. And I didn't know anybody because I left my my group from my grade school, I didn't go on to the private Catholic high school. I ended up at this public high school. And so I didn't know anybody. And I remember walking home from school my freshman year and, oh, it's going to sound so sad, but, you know, I'd be walking home alone and I didn't know anybody. And it was really depressing. It was like, and then I'd go home into an empty apartment because my dad was gone. He was working and he was busy having a social life. You have to remember too, my parents it's really good to know this. They got married. My mother was 19. My dad was 22. Okay. They had no tools. Right. They had kids and tried to put a family together. You're 19, 20, 21 having, you know, it's like right. they had no. So when they got divorced, they both were gone. Right. Now they were free from each other. They were together for 14 years. Now they're free from each other and they're going crazy in their own directions. And there's, you know, my sister and I just going, hello, 
no supervision. Nobody cared what we did. I remember my first year in high school, I, 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 actually, I actually look back to my whole high school experience, and I can say for sure that not once did anybody say, how are you doing? How are your grades? Are you getting your homework done? Are you getting enough to mm. eat? You know, like, I just, like, just simple things like that didn't occur in my life. And I have three children today. Right. And I know that I was always like, did you get your homework done? How are right, we right. doing? Well, I was getting called into the school, you know, and I was going to parent-teacher conference. I was involved. I was doing stuff with PTA. I mean, there was no involvement. It's so odd to me to look back and think during that time that nobody. You knows. know, it's funny. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but you know, it's funny to think about that. You know, parents and society have really changed, and if you really think about the tools that we have nowadays, that it's the world has changed so much that you know, it's. I think we're so fortunate to live in this time in a lot of ways because. Just like you said, you know, when your parents split up, they just, they separated, you know, but now I think, I don't, maybe, maybe it's good and bad, but I think their kids have other tools now to where if they are in that situation, they can still get an education. They can still find other resources, you know, they can find other things, but like, it, it kind of struck me what you said, you know, your parents split up, you know, that was before, you know, internet, that was before everything, cell phones, everything that we had. And it's, I mean, it's kind of a similar situation to what I had you know, my parents split up and, you know, a whole nine yards and I went to a, a different school too. But um, it, it, it's that weird feeling of being isolated, you know, and we have, we're so fortunate today um, that we can be connected. And I think, you know, like going back to what you said, it's, it, it's unfortunate that all of that happened, but in, in a weird way, it almost seems like the universe kind of meant it to be in a way, if that makes sense, you know, totally. totally. I, I, for a very long time was so unaware of how my behavior and my attitude was actually perpetuating this whole cycle of things that were working against me. I was working against right. Deb, I wasn't, you know, I was working right. against myself. It's like, but when you don't know, you don't know. But when you right. finally, the light goes off somewhere. And, and I remember, you know, it's interesting because I've always had this sense of something's not right feeling in me, you know, right. and knowing like, that's not going to do any good to feel sorry for yourself. Like I've kind of known that. Right. Um, and so I think it really, it is everything that has happened to me is all been setting me up for what I'm doing now right. in a weird way. It's like, cause when I look back, you know, when you write a book too, it becomes very, you, you see things clearly, like you see different patterns, like, oh, well, yeah, that happened 10 years prior. And I completely right. missed that one, didn't I? It happened again. And and so you see like these patterns happen and you're not the same person when each of these right. events are happening. You're a different person right. each time. Like I'm not the same person I was when I was 14, 21, getting married at 28, starting a business, losing a business, getting divorced, yeah. like all of those events 
you're you're different. So right. you handle things differently with what you have at the time, what's available to you at the time. Right. It's pretty interesting, actually. It's kind of cool. No, I, I agree. And I think I, I bring that up because I think a lot of people get down on themselves. You know, they they have a bad luck or, you know, bad things happen to them. And they, they really think the, the universe is out to get them. And I think for a lot of people, it kind of seems that way. But I think if you if you dwell on that stuff, it'll it'll eat you up inside. And I think you really have to just say, I can't change it. It happened. It wasn't my fault. And how can I use that to to move forward? Yes. And that's yeah, and if exactly you think, what we've if done. You, if anytime you think the universe is out to get you, guess what? It is. Yeah, if you're thinking exactly. that, you know, if you're thinking, oh, this person's horrible, that person's horrible. You know, yeah. you you think it, it is. And so that's why I said I'm really careful the energy that I allow in and the energy that I put out. I'm super careful. And I, I catch myself sometimes and I'm like, whoa, yeah. you know, what are you putting out right now? Because that's just coming right back to you, you know, and somebody said, I'll use this as an example. People are going to get very upset with me, but people are so incensed with Donald Trump. And they never want me to talk about him. Well, I have to because he's on the cover of my Playboy issue and he's made it a collector's item. But there are people that are so, when they hear his name, they get, he's horrible, he's this, he's that. And they feel that I should feel the same way. And I said, I don't feel that way about anybody because if I feel that way about him, that's just coming right back to me. He's, you know what I mean? If I feel that, if I feel that upset about somebody, whether it's Donald Trump or there's many other people I could be really upset with right now in our world, world leaders. I mean, what about people that kill helpless animals for no reason? I could be really, there's lots of things that could just make me furious and upset. But the minute I do that, that's what I get. I get more of that. I don't want more of that, right. you know? So I'm not going to get on this wagon of being a Donald Trump hater or being a Joe Biden hater or whatever. It's like, no, there's, right. no, there's no reason to, that just comes right back into my world. Right. It's all hate, however you want to look at it. And people go, but it's so justified. It's not justified. You're telling the universe this story, and that's the story that's going to keep showing up in your life. And that's what you're going to keep seeing on the news. You're not going to see anything good. You're just going to see what you want to see and keep perpetuating the story so you can keep telling yourself the same story. Donald Trump's bad. Donald Trump's bad. See, here's all the proof. Bad, bad, bad. and, and it's yeah. funny because I've had a few people say to me, because heard, somebody heard my show a couple of weeks ago, and they said, you know, you shouldn't mention Donald Trump. It really upsets people. And I said, I'm sorry. That's not my, you know, I, I just, he's on the cover of my issue. Of course, I'm going right. to mention him. It's part of history. It's like taking down statues. It's like taking right. down history. Everything, if everything offends us so badly, this is the world. This is history. Right. And intuitively, there have been horrible things that have happened to everyone. Right. We're going to end up with nothing because right. everything is offensive. Colors right. have become offensive now. And 
And so I'm really like worried about these words that people are using to describe things. And it's, I just can't do it. It's like, am I a fan? Do I, you know, have this like, oh my God, I love Donald Trump. No, he's on the cover of my issue. It's part of history. And I really don't have that strong of an opinion of him. I, he served a purpose for four years and, you know, he just happens to be on the cover of my issue, which is now a collector's item. I get more fan mail today than I did when 30 years ago, when the issue came out, nobody cared that he was on the cover. Right. So I'm getting mail every day. That's interesting. Yeah. I would have never, that's awesome. Who would have known? (laughs) Could you imagine if I hated if I had such hate for this man and he's right. on the cover of my issue and I have to look at it for the rest of my well, life, like, yeah, I don't want to put that out there. Well, you know, that brings up a good point. And we, we've talked about this on the show and it, since we're talking about it, you know, that really frightens me the way people are changing, like you said, changing history and changing words. And, you know, what's weird about that is, you know, Donald Trump was on the cover of, of your issue. You said, was it 20, 30 years ago? How long? 30 years ago, 1990. Yeah. So it was 1990. Like, why are we going back and trying to erase history? Whether you, like you said, whether you love the guy or hate the guy, it it happened. And I think one of the things we've talked about on the show too, and you're kind of touching that point is people aren't seemingly willing to talk to one another anymore. You know, even if you disagree politically or whatever the case may be, there's this weird thing in society that it's like, well, you're on that side. You're on this side. You're you're this. You're that. It's like, well, where did that come from, right? Why why can't we talk to other people? Like, you may disagree yeah. politically, but so what, right? Yeah. Even if you even if you hate Biden or Trump, there probably are some things that they did that were pretty good, right? You can still hate the guy, but you can say, well, yeah, maybe he did a couple of good things here, and maybe maybe Biden did a couple of good things, but it doesn't make you a bad person to say that. And it, that's such a weird, and it's not just politics. It, that's such a weird thing right now. And I, I, I hope that people listening to this don't fall in that trap of kind of isolating yourselves in your own little, your own little world, your own little bubble. Cause it, it's not going to, one, it's unhealthy at the very least, like yeah. you said, it, it tears you up inside. And, you know, just for society in general, I think, you know, the, the less we communicate with one another, the less we open ourselves up to other people and other experiences and, and just listen to other people. I think the less we do that, I think the worse we're going to get. And it seems to be getting worse. And I don't know what the answer is to that. And yeah. well, we got it. We got, we got, we got that out of the way. We, at least now everybody yeah. knows, yes, Donald Trump is on the cover of March, 1990 with Deborah well, as the centerfold. <laughs> I'm and I'm on the cover of the following month. And um, yeah, I really, I, I have to say that that whole time was, such a different time 30 years ago there was no social media there was no internet you know when I did playboy it was a completely different experience and if I would have known that there was social media and internet and google and (laughs) you know I mean yeah you couldn't Google people back then. You, right. Everything was private. I it's we live in a different world. You can Google anybody. Yeah. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. All you have to do is click right. on social media to see what everybody's doing, where have they been, where have they traveled to. And people are happy to tell you. They tell you what they're eating, they tell you everything. 
it's unbelievable. So we yeah. definitely, you know, for me to grow up and to be a part of that industry before social media and before the internet, it's, right. it's, it's so crazy. It's completely night and day. And, you know, my experience is that, you know, when I did Playboy, you know, they looked at us differently. You know, we, we were the girl next door, you know, and right. I remember that when they wanted to do a test shoot with me and they, they wanted to see everything, they wanted me to take everything off, put on a rope, do a Polaroid. And I was like, no, how I got to be in Playboy is I already had an agent. I was already modeling in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I get a call from my agent that Playboy's coming out with a new book called the lingerie book. Can I go in for the audition? And I said, well, is there any nudity involved? Because that's what you associate Playboy with. Right, right. And so when I went in to do the Polaroid and the test, they handed me a robe and said, go change and do this and do that. And I, I said, oh, wait, no, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the lingerie book. And so I did Polaroid, leaving all my undergarments on. And they were like, well, we have to see your body, you know, for all our shoots. And so anyway, I was difficult and I left, you know, and right. I thought, well, they're not going to hire me because I'm difficult. And back then what they were doing is they were looking at your body for scars, tattoos, birthmarks, piercings. It was different. That's right. just the way it was back then. They, they wanted to see the canvas, what they were working with. And now today that wouldn't matter. You could have, you could have tattoos all over the place piercings right. like nobody cares and it's a different world but back then that's what they were looking for you know even for swimsuit jobs that I went on they wanted to make sure right. like what 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 they were dealing with so I got home that afternoon and I had a call that they wanted to shoot me for the centerfold and I said this has got to be a mistake they got the wrong girl they they're confusing me with somebody right. Right. and I called my agent she's like no 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 it's true they want to they want to shoot you to be a centerfold. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me, me? This is this can't be right. And she's like, no, they're serious. And so I thought about it, you know, and, and back then, 1989, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. Yeah. I had a lot of admiration for Hef. I read, I read, I went and picked up a Playboy actually. And looked at the magazine and read some stuff. And I thought, wow, it is a, it is a classy magazine. And both my agents agreed that they were fine with me doing it, you know, cause I had to make sure with, mm-hmm. that they were okay with it. And then, you know, I asked my people in my family and they were like, fine with us. And, you know, cause I was already doing stuff in the entertainment world. And so, you know, everybody was comfortable with it. And, so I went and did the test and they, they should first do the test and then they show everything to Hef and Hef approves whether or not that test, meaning that girl is going to be a centerfold. And so my test right. got to Hef. He said, yes, absolutely. She'll be a centerfold for the year 1990. And I spent eight weeks shooting my centerfold and I became March 1990 and then was flown to Chicago to shoot the cover for April, 1990. And so I got to, I got to work at the sunset playboy building. And then I worked in the Chicago, the famous playboy building in Chicago. And I actually went back and forth my first year shooting stuff for playboy 
in Chicago and in LA. And it was just the craziest time in my life. It really, it really did open doors. And all of a sudden people were calling yeah. my agent going, yeah, we want to meet her. So that was, it sounds like that was probably kind of the first like mainstream um, exposure you got with it. Would I be correct? Yeah. I mean, it was the first, it was, yeah. I think being on the cover of Playboy definitely was the biggest. Isn't that that's because a huge deal. It, and it, because, yeah, back then, like I said, it was the number one magazine in the world. Right. Everybody saw it. Everybody had it. You know, I had people calling me, oh, my God, are you on the cover of Playboy? Like, it just, it got crazy because, you know, this is before cell phones and before, yeah. you know, so people were calling my phone and right. leaving messages right. on my answering machine. And I had no less than 10 to 20 messages a day, you know, from people calling saying, and then all of a sudden, you know, people come out of the woodwork that I had met five years, four years prior in the entertainment business, you know, cause I moved to LA in the eighties and was living with two aspiring actresses. And, and so I've met a lot of people when I, you know, this, when I was trying to make it as an actress so all of a sudden, all these people are coming back out of the woodwork. Now they want to see me again. Right. Now, now they're interested, you know. That's interesting. And was that yeah. kind of your goal for play? But did you want to uh, turn that into an acting career? Was that kind of your path that you wanted I was, to take? Uh, yeah, I was already uh, doing commercials and okay. going, on, going on acting auditions, but for small, small parts, like one line okay. here. I was doing extra work on films and and then... I'll never forget this audition that changed my life. It was probably in 88 or the beginning. Of, it was either the late 88 or early 89. And I had been working in LA and I was burning out. And I remember I went on this audition for Charles in Charge, Scott Baio's show. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I, on the, I was on the Universal lot. And I'm, I'm going to say, I think his name was Mel, the casting director. And I went in to read for a big part on the show. It was going to be a mm -hmm. reoccurring part. And I walked in and I'm, hey, you know, bubbly dub walking in and I meet the casting person and we hit it off. And he's like, okay, go ahead. Let's do the reading. And I stood up because it was a scene that required me to stand. I stood up and I had my sides and we start to read. And before I could even get through the first page, he stopped me. And he goes, Deborah, come here, sit down. Best advice I ever got right here, right now stopped me in my tracks and he said when you walked in the door I would have hired you based off your look and your personality he said you're bubbly you showed up on time you're you know everything about you you have you have the quality that I was looking for but girl you cannot act you got to learn how to act and he told me he said go put yourself in an acting class and learn how to act and he goes and I'll see you again because I really think that that you have potential so that day you know most people would have left kind of like forget him right. you know but I was like on a mission and I remember I left there and I was on the phone until I had found the studio that I ended up studying with which was it's the Baron Brown studio and it's still there today and I studied with Joanne Barron and I, I was there for two years and I really wanted to learn how to act and mm -hmm. And, and I remember it was really, I remember when I got there, they do a six weeks first just to see, you know, if you're serious. And, and then they, after the six weeks, you go into the first year. And 
I had to sign stuff saying that I wasn't going to audition. I wasn't going to, I was going to not miss class. And I remember thinking, oh my God, how am I going to pay my rent if I can't work? And what if I get a job that coincides? And I mean, and I was like, you know what, just do it. And I signed up and that was it. I was like, I was in. And when I did go back and start auditioning, I did feel different. I was like, okay, now I felt like when I would get something to go read for, I understood what I was doing. And I wasn't just trying to show up getting by on my looks. I was, I had some chops now. And I remember one of my first auditions was with, she's a famous casting director to this day, Deborah Aquila. She cast me in a movie called The Rapture with Mimi Rogers. And I didn't show up to the read through because when I read the script, it was a nudity scene. And I felt that I had just done Playboy and I was trying to now be taken seriously. And I made the mistake right. of not show, not showing up on this to the read through. You know, I just didn't have good direction and I was kind of just winging it myself. But, you know, she brought me in for other stuff, even though she was very upset with me that I didn't, you know, but even she was like, you know, you could have a career, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to be serious. And, and, you know, I just, I, I've, you know, and I, I didn't do my own advice, which was what I said earlier when I was going on all those auditions, when I was 19, 20, I was in line and I just kept going until I finally got an agent or until I finally booked a commercial or I got extra work or whatever I did. I was right. staying in line until something hit. And in 1992, I got married and I started a family and I kind of got out of line. Okay. And so I would book jobs here and there. And I think the last pilot I did was a show called Nightstand. And I remember at this point, I think I had two, two babies. And just I remember trying to memorize lines and trying to show up on the set and then trying to be a mom. It was too much. Right. And, and I felt kept falling further and further away. And so I just decided to be a full-time mom, maybe do a commercial here and there. But, you know, that I just knew I couldn't do both. And so in 2002, my uh, husband and I started talking about, you know, moving out of L.A. and raising our kids in a small town environment. And we had friends that had moved to Park City, Utah, and we decided Mm -hmm. to move to Park City. So in 2003, we moved. And I was a full-time mom at this point. And I decided when we moved there, I was going to get an agent just, you know, just as a backup, you know, have an agent. And they were filming things in Salt Lake. And so I signed with Talent Management Group, TMG in Salt Lake. And I ended up booking a lot of commercials with them and and infomercials. They did a lot of infomercials in Salt Lake. And and if a movie was coming into film, I'd go in and read for small parts And then in 2004, when I got divorced, I have to reinvent myself again because we didn't have a lot of money in our marriage. This this was at a time in our marriage when financially we were struggling, we were struggling. And so I had to get a job. And I remember the first job was I worked at a spa. I was a spa director. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's so funny to me because I have had so many life experience job experience and and so many different 
paths, you know, and it's, right. it's interesting how you can just get derailed from one thing. And then how did I end up working in a spa, you know, <laughs> right. and then in, and then, then in 2006, I decided to get my real estate license because <laughs> that's what you do in a small town. Everybody's a realtor. And sure. I had, a, and I had a referral, you know, I had a lot of friends coming in from LA and New York and they'd come in and say, Hey, while I'm there, Deb, do you know anybody to show me property? And I was like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I should be the one doing that. That's perfect. And so, yeah. So I teamed up with somebody in park city and, and did that. And then as we know, in 2008, big change, big crash. Right. And the first market to take a hit was the second home luxury market. And that was the market I was working in. So 2008 okay. is basically the year that I lost it all okay. and really had to start over. And when I say start over, the kids had to go live with the dad, with their dad. I oh. had to go live with my mom in Ocala, Florida, in a 55 and over community. And I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do, you know, because I didn't have any, I didn't have a backup plan at all. Right. And, you know, I wasn't getting thousands of dollars a month from the ex. And so it was like, okay, start over once again, here we go. And that probably was the, the, the hardest transition for me because I just felt like I didn't know where I wanted to live. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have answers to anything. If you asked me anything back then, I was like, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I was just a complete wreck. Right. You know, I really was. I was just really not in a good place. I was super depressed, living with my mom, not eating, and feeling sorry for myself. Poor me. How did I end up here? I used to be the it girl, and now I'm living with my mom in Ocala. And I started walking her dog. And I started meeting neighbors in her neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I started, they would say things to me like, oh, your mom must be really proud of you. She must be so happy you're here visiting. Our kids never come and visit. And then they tell me about their health issues. And they would tell me things that would just, all of a sudden I was like laser focused on these people that I didn't even know. Right. And I remember coming home from walking the dog every day. And I would tell my mom what was going on in the neighborhood. <laughs> and who the dog like who Heidi her her dog's name is Heidi who Heidi played with where we hung out then I took her on the golf cart we went here went like that was my life but right. the funny thing about that I know it sounds really trivial to talk about but the the importance of that time in my life is that those people were saving my life right you know all of a sudden, I wasn't thinking about me. I was thinking about them. I was now becoming of service to these right. people. It's so funny because, you know, throughout my life, there is a pattern of me being of service. And I know that those are the happiest times of my life when I've had that purposeful feeling of I am I'm helping somebody, whether it was my husband's cousin was dying she had a brain tumor and I remember helping mm. her with nutrition and yeah, just horrible. helping. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. But this was years ago, but I remember like how I felt good about helping and being of service. 
And then right. I had another situation like that. And, you know, just I always felt good when I was being of service, not when I was getting something from somebody, right. but when I was actually being of service. And, you know, my kids remember things like that to this day. They remember like me always being the one to offer help, whether it was at their school or with family friends or with family, you know, just me always like, what can I do to help? Right. And, and I think that that has been my biggest lesson in life is that when I look back in my 57 years, the times that I felt the best about myself was when I was doing something for somebody right. else. And end uh, of story right there. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's huge. And just like, like you said before, I mean, that's putting that good energy out in the universe or however you want to describe it. I, I think, I don't think, I don't think we can speak highly enough of yeah. you know, sacrifice and, and being generous to other people, because I think if doing it and expecting something in return is, is always an issue, but doing it for the sake of being a good person and doing it for the sake of, of helping people. Is, yeah. It's hard not to, it's not, it's hard really not to be like sometimes. Yeah. And you know what, by the way, so I've been lots of times I have to practice doing this because I do like accolades. Who doesn't, who doesn't want that pat on the back? Like, Oh, that's right, so cool right. that you did that. Are you helped? But I have now started this thing where I do things and people don't know that I did yeah. it. And I do it on purpose because it's like this feeling inside where it's like, I so badly want to go, I did that. But, you know, to practice not doing that, it's so right. good. It's like, I can't explain. It's like picking up someone's check at a restaurant and them never knowing who did it. It's yeah. that, it's those little things that today, like I, I look for those opportunities where I can do something and somebody has absolutely no clue that I did it. I love that. That to me is like everything. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, so many people aren't even willing to do a fraction of, of that. That's, that's great to hear. Um, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, take me through like you, so you got through the real estate crash. You decided to start helping people. Um, I mean, you've still done a lot more after that in the last couple oh of years. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so much more. So I really had to eat a lot of humble pie. In 2009, I did a bunch of weird jobs. I worked on a yacht. I worked on a, okay. on a boat called Summer Love. I was, on, you, that for, I was on that boat for three weeks. Oh, my God. I, this is, I swear, I, this is why I'm writing a book or I wrote a book because these stories, you just can't make this up. So yeah. I'm at my mom's and I'm like, I have to do something, right? Because I know right. you got to get momentum back. And I'm just, I'm, now I'm out of the defunct of the self-pity. So I'm like, well, now I got to do something. So I think it's a great idea that I, I, I'm like in my head, I'm fantasizing, like I'm going to be the stewardess on a beautiful yacht and, you know, make beautiful flower arrangements and take care of somebody on their yacht. Like that to me seemed like a really good idea. Well, in order to work on a yacht, you have to go through training. And I found the place in Fort Lauderdale where I could do the training. And I took the train, which I never take the train from Ocala to Fort Lauderdale. Never, ever, <laughs> ever take the train 
okay. from Ocala to Fort. Oh my God. I could not wait to get off this train. I was crying the whole time. It was so bad. And um, <laughs> just, I, that's another show in itself. Anyway, okay. Okay. so here I am on this train and I'm freaking out. And I get off the train in Fort Lauderdale and I go to stay at this house where all the people that work on yachts, they have all these houses and you can stay while you're going through training. And right, I show right. up at the house and there's like, all these young people and they've been partying and there's alcohol everywhere and there's cockroaches on the floor. And I'm like, Oh my oh, God. Man. I'm like, what, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> so I'm like, I leave. And I call my mom. She's in Ocala. And I go, I can't stay in this house. I think I'm going to get a hotel room near the place. So I called a taxi this before Uber. I call right. a taxi and I said, this is the address of where my school is. Can you just take me over to that general area and I can look for a hotel? And so it was a night, it wasn't a bad area. It was a nice area. And so I found a pretty right, nice, right. decent hotel, not a five-star hotel, but just so I could walk to school every day. And so I find this hotel. This is crazy. And so I'm walking to school every day. And I met these other women going through the training. And I'm the oldest going through the training, but they don't know that. They think I'm their age, which is so right. funny to me. And so, because I'm in my 40s at this point, I'm like 43 or something or 45. I don't know. Anyway, so I go through the training. And while I'm going through the training, I'm online on all these websites for people looking for stewardesses. And this guy reached out to me and he's like, hey, we have a gig. We're going to leave out of Baltimore and go to New York, you're going to be cleaning on the yacht all the way to New York. And then the owners are getting on in New York and we're going to uh, sail down, you know, by, uh, can't think of it right now, but by West Point, this beautiful, you know, okay. beautiful part that it's beautiful at this time of year. And sure. Anyway, so, and then we did this dinner cruise around the Statue of Liberty and all this stuff. And so I'm like, that sounds easy. I mean, they're not even going to be on the ship and on the boat. And he goes, no, they're not getting on till New York. And so I'm thinking, oh, three weeks. I'm only going to have to work two of the weeks. I don't know what I'm thinking. But anyway, so he hired me. I <laughs> sent him all my stuff and he hired me. I've never worked on a boat. So I get my certificate and I had to get one more certificate. He goes, you have to get one more. And I can't remember what it's called, but Basically, what it is, is you have to learn how to handle an emergency on a boat. Okay. So I, got, I went through the stewardess training. Now I'm going through where I had to put out a fire. I had to, like, learn all, go through CPR again. So cut to the last day of this thing. The fire department comes. They put us in head-to-toe fireman uniforms, and then they... We had to clip on to the oxygen and all I can hear is <gasps> like this loud breathing and I completely freak out. I'm like, like going like this. So they take me out of the thing and I'm like, <gasps> I'm like I, can't, I can't do that. And the guy comes over to me and goes, if you don't do this part of the training, you don't get the certificate. Basically the training was you had to put all that on and go through and put out a fire in this mocked mock-up house sure. basically it's it's a house they set it on fire and you have to go in and put the fire out and i'm like oh my god 
like, oh my God, are you kidding? This was after two days of, I've already had to jump off a diving board into a uh, safety thing and in all my wets, you know, when you, if a ship goes down, you got to put the mat out, like in cast away. I I just did all that crazy training and now I got to put out a fire and I'm like, what the heck? So I'm the last person. I'm sweating profusely. It's the middle of summer. I'm going through this training and everybody's going through, putting out the fire, coming out. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm shaking. I'm like, I'm so claustrophobic. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to do this. And the guy comes out. He's like, you got to go. And I literally, it took me two times. I go in. because the, the hardest part for me was the minute they clip you onto the oxygen. Right. And I was like, the minute I could only hear. <gasps> right. right. And I got the oxygen. So I go in the house and it's pitch back pitch black dark and I'm looking for the fire and I see the fire and it's really hot and smoky and I go back out and I'm like freaking out and they take the thing (laughs) off and I'm completely sweating and they're like you got to do it so they go you know what we'll do it with you You, because I couldn't do it by myself I could not do this by myself it was too dark too hot and I was too claustrophobic so they clip me back on and the guy goes, he, he's following me. So I know he's behind me. And he's like, right. I'm, I got you. He's yelling. I got you. I can't hear him barely. All I can hear is me breathing. I used up half my oxygen just oh, no. doing this one exercise. Oh, no. I used up all my oxygen. I was like, <gasps> oh no. Anyways, so I come out, I do it. I'm like, okay. Next thing I know. A week later, I'm flying to Baltimore to get on Summer Love. And they're now taking me through telling me all the things I have to do, all the work I have to do. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I'm Lab. like, oh, it's so much work. I've never worked harder in my entire life. By the time I got off that boat three weeks later, my mother picked me up in Orlando at the airport. I was bruised from head to toe. My hair was out to here. I looked, I mean, I was a mess. I was such a mess. My mom's like, what happened to you? I'm like, I don't ever want to do that again. (laughs) I was crying. I was like... I'm never doing that again. I don't care what I have to do. I'm never getting on a boat again. It was so hard. Like, oh. I can't even tell you. It was the hardest work I've ever done. I remember cleaning with a toothbrush. Like everything had to be meticulous. The minute I thought wow. I was done with one project, another, right. and something, I was the only stewardess. It was me, the captain, the, co- the deck hand, and the chef. And I had to sleep in the, the, the little bunk, it was me and the captain and you know, there's curtains, but, and we, I had to share a shower with those guys. You can't write this. You can't make this stuff up. It was so bad. So yeah. So I did all (laughs) sorts of horrible work, like unbelievable. And you know, and then Six months later, I'm in New York working for a company selling millions of dollars of procurement, you know? So we never know where life is going to take yeah. us. And you know what's funny is I remember I was sitting on that yacht. 
I was up on the top and I was serving the owners and their friends cocktails because now I'm the cocktail waitress and I'm serving the drinks and they're all asking me, you know, well, what did you used to do? And then they all were Googling me and looking me up and they're like, oh my God, she was an actress and she was in Playboy and, and she's right. like working on this yacht. And I remember the night, like it was yesterday, it was a rainy night and the uh, owner of the yacht had a huge party. Everybody was coming onto the boat wet. They had to take off their jackets and their shoes. And I had to keep track of every single person's jacket and shoes. Oh, no. And I had to really be of service, right? I'm taking care of everybody. And I had to remember who went with who. Like, this right. went with this person. I couldn't, I couldn't miss a beat. And I remember that night sitting there thinking, the next time I'm on a boat, it's my boat. Right. The next time I'm on a boat, it's my boat. It's my, my boat. I'm not working right. on the boat. Right. And, you know, and I just kept saying that over and over and over again, as I was taking care of all these people coming on the boat, I was like, the next time I'm on a boat, it's my boat. Now I don't own a boat and I don't have a boat, but, I did end up on a boat several years later on a private ship as a guest for a week. I took my daughter. We went all through Indonesia. And, oh, wow. I, re and I remember flashing back to, you know, how hard I worked because I was watching the workers right. on that boat, on that private ship. And I was watching them. And I was like, if they only knew, you know, like that was oh, me. That was me seven years ago. Right. doing that work and now here i am on this ship you know yeah. and i so i you know when you have those kind of experiences when you've been at the top of your game and now you're at the very bottom of your game you don't forget things like that you know you just right. you don't forget how it feels you don't forget that you know what i'm just another gus on the bus you know right it could happen to me, it could happen to anybody. And now my whole goal is to just kind of stay humble, stay in the middle, stay, right. stay kind of keep going after my stuff that I go after, keep aspiring right. to do better in whatever it is I'm doing, but not for any other reason, but to be of service and to help other people. Right. And if this story that I'm telling right now help somebody who's listening if they go oh my god if she could be on the cover of a magazine from the number one magazine in the world and be scrubbing toilets 10 years later then you know you know life's life life's that's what happens in life right things happen right. i'm not saying that you need to go through that to learn a lesson i'm saying just be really grateful for the things that you have right now because you never know when th things will switch, <laughs> they right. just do look at last year is a perfect example. And, you know, for me, last year was another year where it was like hit or miss. Like, are we going to have a good year? Is this going to, what's this year going to be like? It was all on it, all unknown, unknown, right. you know, and in the past, that kind of stuff would just really get me worked up and make right. me freaked out. Like, I really like to have certainty, certainty, certainty. And at the end of the day, it's not about it. It's just, no, about love. it's just about love and growth. 
Yeah, I totally love agree. and contribution, love and contribution. Yeah. And you know, there is no certainty. If anything we learned from this past year, there is no certainty at all for anybody. Oh, absolutely. This last yeah. year has been incredible. I, I don't think anyone would have ever predicted 90% of the stuff that, that happened. Yeah. Um, it, it's been incredible. But I mean, that being said, I mean, what, what were you doing last year? You know, what were you, um, how did you cope with, with COVID and how were you affected? And I mean, you know, what, what changes, or did you make any you know, drastic changes in the last year? I, I don't know that I made any drastic changes, but what I did do is, so I started off the year where I had this one idea, goal, intention. And that was, I was going to start going around and speaking in front of small family offices about what I do and, you know, about insurance and sales and all of that. And so I was kind of testing the waters out and I did an event in New Jersey and it did really well. And I had people coming up to me afterwards saying, Hey, I'd really like it if you come speak at my event. And I was like, wow, really? Cause I was, I wasn't sure if people were going to be interested in hearing what I had to say. And and really, my whole pitch was no means maybe. And, you know, because throughout my life, anytime somebody said no to me, I was like, okay, well, maybe. You know, right, it was like right. kind of my inside joke for myself. I would say that. And I remember when I was working in New York at the print procurement company and, you know, millions of dollars of deals were on the table and I, we'd be waiting to know whether or not it would happen. And instead of being focused on that, I'd go next, what's next? Right. And so I became, everybody looked at me, they're like, Anytime they said something to me, they'd be like, next. And so, but I was always about no means maybe. Don't, we don't take no as the final in sales, okay? Right. And so that, that was what I spoke about, no means maybe. And, you know, how relationships are the most important thing when you're in sales. Right. And so I was getting all this momentum and then everything got shut down. So everything yeah. that I had scheduled from January to March got canceled and, and then, so I decided to write a book and I asked a few people what they thought about what I wanted to write about. And, and I got great feedback and everybody said, yeah, you mm-hmm. should definitely write a book because it is unusual. Some of the stuff that I talk about. And so I spent last year writing and going through a lot of, um, self development, really, I I was really working on myself. And I say that because I think it's really important throughout our lives to take a month, two months, a year, whatever you need, to just focus on yourself. And just do something for yourself. And I had done that, like I would do a week here or a week there. But I took some real time to just sit and be with myself and work on myself in a really healthy environment. And I gave myself kind of a schedule. Mm -hmm. And I talk all about this in my book, what I did that really helped with this process. Because sometimes when you write about things that you've been through, it can trigger those traumas that you got through, right? Right. Because now you're talking about it. I'm writing about it. I'm like, oh yeah, that, (laughs) you know, like, I don't really want to think about that again, you know, like, right, like right. going through that fire or, or not having any money or, you know, it's like, those are little traumas that come up. And so I had to put myself in a really good, healthy environment and, um, and make sure that, that I was actually feeling that stuff. You know, I think it's really good to recognize 
when things are happening and to recognize them before they get too big. And lots of different people say different things when that's occurring. A lot of people will say just pause or just halt or just stop or just take a moment, take a deep breath, meditation, whatever it is, you know, there's all these different things. And for me, my big thing that I do today, and especially this last year during the pandemic is I'm going to sleep on that. And I don't, I don't make any major decisions anymore unless I actually sleep on it and think about it and then let my gut tell me, does that feel right? You know, like I had something come up yesterday, literally yesterday with my daughter, where she came to me and she asked me if she could do something mm-hmm. that invo- it involved me. And she told me her whole story and what she wanted to do and how she wanted to proceed. And at first I was like, okay. You know, and then last night I slept on it. And then today when I was thinking about it, I was like, no, that doesn't feel right to me. So I had to go to her and I say, Hey, I had a change of mind. You know, I changed my mind and that doesn't feel right. You know, you can do such and such, but for me, it didn't feel right what she was asking of me. And so I'm using that as an example because that just happened. And in the past, I think I would have been like, okay, no worries. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Boom. You know, like I'm always like, I'm a fast, I move very fast and it works well in business and it works well in sales it does not work so well in personal life de- decisions. <laughs> yeah, in personal life, in personal life decisions, I think I have to. For me, I have to give myself a day to digest things. Right. You know, if so, you know, if somebody gives me a task that has to do with work or business, or or can you get on this call? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. Boom, done. But in every day, in my life every day, and just for my own personal development, I think it's really important to just take a moment. I used to get very charged up by emails and texts and all of that. And now texts come in. If I don't like the text, instead of responding, I hit delete. (laughs) True story, because I, well, let me tell you, you will save yourself so much unnecessary energy of you know because I used to sit there and be like oh my and just like couldn't wait to respond right right and now I'm like no thanks (laughs) (laughs) is it it's not even worth my time right I had something come through this morning that was in my opinion a little like does I literally asked the question see and this is really good about asking the right questions I asked the question is this worth my time and right. if my gut says no, delete. Yeah, that's, that's save awesome. My, think- save, yeah, I saved myself a lot of, listen, my energy is really important to me. How, yeah. I, how I do my day, I'm all about time, right? I don't want to waste any time. I'm all about like, right. if this is productive, if this is something that will serve me in the right way, or if I can serve somebody in the right way, it's all about time, time management. And as we get older, as I get older, time becomes really important to me. I'm 57, you know. I'm, before you know it, I'm going to be 60. Before you know it, I'm going to be 65. So t- I, I feel like I'm just getting started in some, gr- you know, I have a great attitude when it comes to that. But I'm also very, very aware 
that some of these things that come across my table now are just not worth my time. And I, so that is something, if somebody in their 20s can get that now, it will save yeah. you so much heartache because <laughs> you, won't, you won't be bothered by these things that you're like, because you'll ask a simple question, is this worth my time? Before uh, responding to anything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, that's, you know, it's funny, like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm that old, but I feel like I'm still 20, you know, and it, it, that's, I think, one of the biggest things I noticed is when you're 20, you're like, I've got time, I've got time, I'll, I'll do this later, I'll, I'll get an education later, I'll do this, I'll do that. And then somewhere around 30, 35, you're like, time is the most valuable thing in the world to me. And no matter what I do, I can never make more of it. And no, no matter how much money I have or how much I beg and plead, I have a finite amount of time. And, and I don't mean that in a morbid way. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's really incredible what you said. And, and I just want to touch on that. Just anyone out there, time is so valuable and it, it, don't, don't waste it because especially now there's so much opportunity. Don't yeah. major, don't major in minor things. Yeah. Just don't major in minor things because yeah. in the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter. It yeah. really doesn't. Like I, I am like, I got upset about something two days ago and I thought, okay, Deb, let's think about this. Right. Is it worth being upset about this? Right. Exactly. Like in, in a year from now, are you even going to remember this? And I was like, I can answer my own question. No, I'm not even going to remember this. This isn't even going to be on my radar yet. I got really like, and then I like stopped. And I was like, this is not worth me being upset about because I'm not, it's not going to be here on my radar. Even six right. months from now, it won't be here. Maybe even a week from now. And so we have to be really, really careful. And it also affects people. It affects your immune system. When you allow all this stuff to penetrate. Yes, absolutely. You know, people have all these issues that they can never get diagnosed. This is something that I'm very interested in actually today. Okay. Is the undiagnosable things that people have. Everybody has leaky gut. Everybody has SIBO. Everybody yeah. has digestive <laughs> issues. Everybody has yeah. an allergy. Everybody has gluten. Everybody has, everybody <laughs> has something now yeah. that nobody was talking about 30 years ago. 30 years ago, yeah. we didn't have these things. I don't remember any of my friends ever saying, oh, I'm gluten intolerant. Oh, I have SIBO. Oh, I have a bacterial in my intestine and I can no longer eat meat. I am purely strictly vegan. I can't eat eggs. I'm highly allergic to the egg white. I can eat the yellow, but not the white. I mean, it goes on and on and on yeah. and on. I have mercury. I can't eat fish. You know, it's like... <laughs> Right? The insanity uh, of you. it. The insanity of these undiagnosed diagnoses. And really, it comes down to emotional stuff. You know, it's the emotional stuff. And everybody's like filling with stuff that's mm -hmm. like, and the minute you tell yourself, oh, I'm gluten intolerant, then you are. Yeah. I. That is a whole nother show. I am totally off topic. When we're done with this uh, recording here, there's a comedian, JP Sears, who did an amazing video on gluten intolerance that you have to watch. I just met so. him. I love him. I met him a year ago 
He came to a private okay. event and did a show. He's the okay. red, red hair, right? Yeah, long red hair. Yeah. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, he came to a, I had a okay. private event. Um, uh, I'm in a group with the Tony Robbins group and he came and okay. performed for us. It was amazing. He is so funny. Yeah. Oh, he's he's well, amazing. So. I love, I think I've seen it. I know what you're talking about. It's okay. so funny, but yes. Very cool. You know, we didn't even, <laughs> for as busy as you are, and I wanted to touch on this, I mean, we could talk for hours. You, you've been amazing with, with your time, but Thank I did you. want to touch on briefly, even with all the time that you, you put into other people and everything you do, you still find time for charity. And I wanted to touch on that briefly before we, we end our time here. I know you're involved in a lot of charities. Can you, can you talk about those briefly and kind of how you got started? Um, Cause I think that's yeah, important. You know, also. there's, there are a few that are dear to my heart. You know, um, I, I, I get exposed to a lot of different philanthropic charity. You know, I have a lot of friends that run their own charities. And so the very first one that I found to be interesting was a friend of mine who used to be an entertainment lawyer, Scott Pfeiffer. He started the Go campaign. He was in Africa and he he just got got he got in got in his blood that he wanted to be of service. And he started helping build schools in all these remote areas in Africa, in Peru. And, oh, wow. you know, he came back to the States and he started the GOAT campaign. And, and it's a non, um, nonprofit organization and all the money goes directly to the schools. And so I got involved. This is before I even had money to donate, but I got involved to help bring people to him at first. And then when I did start having some success in uh, 2013, I started getting a little more financially involved. And then I started to insure foundations. And so I mm -hmm. called him and I said, I think we should insure your foundation because Scott, if something were to happen to you, what would happen to your foundation? And so we had a whole talk about that. And then he put a trip together for some of his don't uh, people that donate um, to go to Peru. And he asked me if I wanted to go. And I said, yeah, I want to go. I want to see what you're doing. And so we, you know, we did, we made it into a two part trip. We went to go visit the communities that we were, he was donating money to. And we also went and hiked Machu Picchu and it was a yoga hiking retreat as well. And so I went to the school up in the mountains in Peru, above Sacred Valley, I believe is where we were. It was way in the mountains. And right. I just remember I walked into the school, they had nothing, nothing. Right. And these kids were so happy. I have so many beautiful photos, you know, with the kids. And I asked him, you know, if I could adopt the school. And so I sent them money every month. I just wow. wrote a check That's every incredible. month and sent them money. And so I adopted the school and, and then, you know, he, he does stuff here locally in LA and, and then he does stuff in Africa and he does stuff in all over and um, just remote areas, but he's had a really good run. He, I think he actually started in 2006 mm -hmm. and he's done very well and he's gotten a lot of celebrity endorsements and, and, um, and I've been involved with him. And so that's one, one that I'm involved with. And then um, Tony is involved with Our Rescue, which is, you know, rescuing 
girls and boys from sex slavery. And right. so I got involved with that and donated a lot of money last year to that. And then um, I have my friends, Siri and Beck. I have to mention them because they, they do a lot for horse slaughter. And I, I donated quite a bit of money last year to them to, to prevent these horses from going to slaughter. So what happens is, is, yeah, when these horses can't find a home, you know, they're, you know, people get tired of, or they can't afford to have their horse anymore. And then they go into kind of like the foster system, I guess, so to speak. Okay. And when they can't find a home for the horse, they go to slaughter. And I didn't know this. And when I found I out either. about it, yeah. Wow. So when I found out about it, I got involved. That's because it's what I do. <laughs> sure. And so I got involved <laughs> and we had this big charity event that Melissa Etheridge and Bo Derek and Julianne Hoff and They've got in some really amazing celebrities to come and support and Tony Robbins and, and Sage were there and, and we raised money to help prevent horses from going to slaughter. And it, and so it's called horses in our hands wow. and you can, you can go online and Google and, and right. I really highly recommend anybody to go online and just sign the petition. If anything, if you can't donate the money, just sign the petition because we're trying to get a law passed that's preventing these horses from going to slaughter, that there's gotta be another alternative. Right. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to bring, bring that up because I, I read a little bit about that and that's, I had no idea that was happening. And I, I don't think yeah. a lot of other people realize that. Yeah. And, and once, you become aware, once you become aware of these things, you know, you, you, you start to look at things differently. And I remember yeah. I, was on, I was on Necker Island with uh, Virgin Unite has a, a leadership program that they do every year. And, and I went and, you know, Richard Branson, Van Jones, uh, the ex-prime minister of Bhutan and the ex-president of Colombia, Martin Luther King III. I mean, it's just a beautiful group of leaders. And, but the thing that stood out, and I'll never forget, and a lot of things stood out, as you can imagine, during that week. Right. But when Van started speaking about prison reform, and I knew nothing about that. You know, and so I asked him, how can I get involved? Right. And he's like, oh. And so he hooked me up with the people in his office. And so in January of 2020, I did a whole event here in Los Angeles to help bring awareness to his prison reform and prison redemption documentary that he did. Okay. And, you know, it just bringing, a, bringing in awareness, you know, because like you said, you, when you don't know that something's happening... It's okay. But when you do find out about it, you know, the best thing to do is just to find out how you can help, even if it's in a really small way. And, and like I said, with the horses in our hands, if you Google horses in our hands, you go to their website, you can just sign a petition. How beautiful is that? And then you've helped, you know, not everything has to do with handing over money. Sometimes you could just have an event in your open up your home, have an event, you know, or if yeah, you have no, property, great, if you have property and you don't mind having another horse, they're always looking for homes for these horses. You know, just those yeah. are there's always ways to help and be of service. Oh, I I totally agree. And that's that's incredible. Um yep. you know, those are incredible charities. I, I well anyway, that was a beautiful way to uh to to uh bring this to a close. Exactly. And yeah, so I just wanted to thank you so much for allowing me to share my story and share my time. And, and if anybody out there 
resonated with my story or want to follow my journey, they can do so on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, all the social media. It's at my name, Deborah Driggs. I will be posting a lot of stuff on Instagram, interviews and, um, and my new website that's going to be up and running in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to put the link to my website on Instagram and, and then all my book, all the details for my book and the release of my book and all of that will be at the website. That's awesome. And we will, uh, we will do the same on our socials and post our link or post links for you. So people can find you. Thank you. Um, but just in closing, Deborah, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Um, you are just an incredible person. Um, and you really, really epitomize everything that we talk about on the show. Um, and I wish we could talk for hours because you are just, you're an awesome person. And it was a pleasure, meeting you. And a pleasure speaking with you. Thank and you I hope so we can much. do it again soon. Thank you. I would so, love that. Thank no. you so much. You're welcome. Thank you My for pleasure. having me. Bye, everybody. Thank you. And that was our show with Miss Deborah Driggs. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Miss um, Driggs was a, an awesome guest. Uh, we could have spoken to her for a few more hours. Um, she is really an amazing person. She has an amazing story. And I, I think you guys have seen that her story epitomizes really everything that we talk about on the show. Uh, you know, she started, you know, like she said, from humble beginnings. Um, you know, she's accomplished a lot, which is amazing. And I think what's really important about her story is that no matter what she did, she kept pushing forward. You know, she, she was never satisfied. She always wanted more. She always kept, kept trying for the next thing. And, you know, what, what was surprising too about her story is that, there were a few times when she had opportunities presented to her and she almost walked away from them (laughs) and the opportunities came back and found her. So, you know, I I think it's, I think it's really interesting to, uh, to hear that, but you know, also too, just as a reminder, you know, when opportunities present themselves, sometimes you got to take advantage of it because you may not get a second chance. You know, you may not be as fortunate as, as Ms. Driggs was to, to get the call back you know, or to have someone, you know, pursue you and and actually want to get you involved in whatever they're working on. So, you know, again, uh, Ms. Triggs is an awesome guest. Uh, We hope to have her back. She was very generous with her time. Uh, You know, she's very busy. I know she had several interviews scheduled uh, that same day that we recorded. So please go support her, go support her charities. Uh, We'll put all those links um, up in the show notes. So if you want to uh, support the charities that she spoke about, we will, uh, we will have links to those also. Uh, so thanks again for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, hope to uh, have her back in the near future. But um, hope you all had a good day, and we will uh, we will talk to you soon. Bye, everybody.